You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health podcast. I have Dr. Kevin Boyd. We're going to be talking about uh, Darwinian dentistry. Dr. Boyd's a board-certified pediatric dentist with over 20 years' experience. Um, I'm not sure what Darwinian dentistry is, but we're going to get into it. So, Dr. Boyd, thanks for being here. Hi. Darwinian dentistry is just a cute little alliteration that uh, describes a new educational framework that started about... 30 years ago in uh, medicine, um, and it was called evolutionary medicine or Darwinian medicine. And I was really impacted by the uh, creators of that, uh, George C. Williams, who's an evolutionary biologist who's uh, uh, no longer with us, but uh, Randy Nessie is a psychiatrist. At the time, he was at the University of Michigan, and he partnered with George C. Williams and Let's start looking at uh, modern diseases that seem to uh, be a function of cultural industrialization um, mm. and start analyzing them from not just proximate cause, which would mean like a fever. What is the proximate, immediately understandable uh, main cause of a fever is pathogens entering the bloodstream. Well, that's proximate cause, but it doesn't really tell you much about why we get fevers and how is it that the process of natural selection, which is, you know, the term that they use to describe how our ancestors were able to adapt uh, over geological time to gradually but always changing environments. And um, when when uh, maybe a random mutation or something called genetic drift, but uh, would would confer a trait to somebody that would actually enable them to uh, be better adapted to the environment. Um, <clears throat> that's something that would get incorporated into the genome. Um, one of the things that happens in in uh, mammals is that they get fevers uh, when pathogen enters the blood, and if they survive the fever, they will live to live another day and hopefully reach the age of reproduction so they can pass on their genes. That's called evolutionary fitness. So right. if you the fever mechanism um, is what we, you know, looking at fever from an evolutionary perspective means that we're, we're looking why natural selection has allowed something as miserable as a fever to persist, and that's because it can confer evolutionary fitness to an individual. Well, how about um, tooth decay? How about malocclusion or, you know, the, the why we need orthodontists? Like, what does that have to do? When, when did that first enter into the human condition? So um, 
I've sort of adapted the model of uh, evolutionary medicine or Darwinian medicine to uh, evolutionary oral medicine or Darwinian dentistry. So that's where it comes from. So any conclusions? Where do you think that, uh, I mean, is, I would think most people would, I guess, say it's, at least for modern conditions, it's obvious, you know, maybe uh, poor eating habits leads to tooth decay and then maybe subsequent heart conditions or diabetes, things like that. I mean, what what interesting conclusions are you drawing from this perspective? Well, first of all, you know, they're conclusions. I don't know. They're, it's a, there's, there's testable hypotheses. Um, but, you know, until we invent a time machine, we can't really go back in time, right? But but we can, there's inferences that, that we could, like we can look at uh, a 3,000-year-old human skull and we can infer what the brain size was, even though soft tissues like brains don't really fossilize, but you measure the house within which a brain lived, and that is the skull, right? The cranium. So we just, you know, in the early on in this science of uh, anthropology, they would pour little metal beads or, or sand into a skull and, you know, measure the volume. And that would be the, the brain volume, right? Well, you can do the same thing um, with jaws uh, in that we can measure the width of the jaws and the depth of the palate and the length of the jaws. And you can pretty much know um, what the size of a tongue was because the tongue had to live up in the roof of the mouth in order to uh, confer the ability to survive childhood and live to adulthood because that meant you were a habitual nose breather, which is something that is just not really discussed much in medicine and dentistry now uh, as it was 100 years ago. Um, <clears throat> so some of the conclusions are, like I just gave you one, as, but it's really not a conclusion. It's a hypothesis that has a lot of support. Um, you know, for any hypothesis to be valid, it has to be, you know, refutable and, and testable. So we've come up with certain assumptions or, or suppositions that, uh, that that our pre-industrial ancestors, that is living before cultural industrialization in Western Europe in the, in the late 18th, early 19th century. And even today, you know, you have Aboriginal cultures that they they lived the same way they did for hundreds of thousands of years, and then they moved to a big city, and they all of a sudden start getting, you know, crooked teeth and cavities. So go figure. Uh, so those are, that's that's really the main thing that we're doing at the Penn Museum, where I'm doing some postdoc research with Mariana Evans, who's a, a dual-trained orthodontist and periodontist at Penn uh, and in Philadelphia. And we what we do is we take these pre-industrial skulls. And that means they're at least 250 years old, right? When they die, you know, it could be a four-year-old that died, you know, in the 1700s. Uh, it could be a 32-year-old that died, you know, in 1850. Um, those are considered pre-industrial skulls. And we, we use three-dimensional radiography cone beam technology from Dr. Evans' private practice office. We take the skulls out of the museum and we um, measure all the lines and angles that orthodontists uh, use to decide how to treatment plan uh, a kid who, or an adult that, that needs orthodontia. Does that make sense? So, all right. So, yeah, what what do you, well, again, you're looking at historical skulls to see how people were physiologically, morphologically versus now, or are you uh, applying yeah. this in a modern way somehow? Yeah, we are. Um, and that's a really good way you phrase that. 
is that, like I alluded to a 35-year-old who say he died, you know, 2,000 years ago. Well, I can pretty much predict within a, you know, a really strong degree of scientific certainty of what that 35-year-old looked like when he was 12 and what he looked like when he was six and what he looked like when he was four and what he looked like when he was two. Now, how can I do that? Because you couldn't with a 35-year-old today. Like if, if I saw a 35-year-old with perfect teeth, erupted wisdom teeth, beautiful jaw, big airway, I couldn't really predict what he looked like when he was three years old because maybe he had orthodontics to get that. Maybe he had surgery. Well, there wasn't orthodontics and surgery. If somebody didn't have perfect teeth in early childhood, they did not survive childhood because perfect jaws and teeth, and that just means optimal for nose breathing habitually, that means that that person uh, prehistorically survived childhood. They couldn't have survived childhood, and it means that they were breastfed on demand for about three and a half years and were weaned onto firm and unprocessed foods. They were papoosed on their mother's back. They had to hold their head up. They talked with a click language in Africa, which pushes the tongue against the roof of the mouth in early childhood. If kids couldn't do that, they didn't survive. Uh, they oh, really? Quick, click language does that? Huh. Like causa? Oh, yeah. You should. There, there's studies that lingual anthropologists do. They measure the pressure that a tongue uh, creates when they push it to form the consonants that click languages do. So that's, again, that's a hypothesis. I, I, I can't say that that's 100% true, but it's a testable hypothesis. So cool. you know, from click speaking, from weaning onto hard and unprocessed, baby-led weaning it's called, uh, breastfeeding on demand, you know, for three and a half years, uh, those are in, in papoosing, having to, you know, hold the head up and keep the lips closed. The posture has to be really good. Um, you know, that confers survivability beyond childhood uh, to a kid, you know, in a pre-industrial, pre-industrialized culture. But currently, why, you know, you said you couldn't tell if, if someone had all the right attributes today. I mean, what about medical records or questionnaires? Couldn't you ask them and, you know, figure it out that way? Well, for one thing, um, malocclusion isn't something that really the orthodontic profession, much less the medical profession, pays attention to. Still after the age of seven, the American Association of Orthodontists says a kid should not be seen or, you know, should have their first orthodontic evaluation by age seven. Well, that's a geriatric patient in my pediatric practice. Seven is getting Ugh. old. <laughs> so um, there's so much that can be done in the preschool years. And I can show you published evidence from the late 1800s through 1940 that physicians and dentists were treating kids as young as two and a half years old for orthodontic expansion, not to make their teeth straight, but to give them room for their tongues so they can breathe through their nose. The titles of the articles from JAMA, New England Journal of Medicine, what was called the Boston Medical Journal and Medical, Boston Journal of Medicine and Surgery, um, about how to improve a child's ability to breathe through their nose by orthodontic expansion. It's all over the place. Every lecture I go to now, I show more articles about this should be done. It's ridiculous that orthodontists don't want to see a kid till seven. It's medically indefensible, actually, because children who have restrictive uh, traits in their jaws affect their airway. You know, we, we, we don't call it craniofacial anymore. We call it craniofacial respiratory. And, and the hard and soft tissues of the craniofacial respiratory complex can give indication of a child's ability to breathe through the nose as early as, you know, 18 months old, perhaps even in utero. 
on ultrasounds, we can pick oh, wow. this up. Yeah, so lot lots been happening, and there's a lot of support for it. Um, and a, a you know, or, orthodontics, the the orthodontic profession is being pushed uh, to be seeing kids much younger. The American Dental Association uh, House of Delegates just passed a resolution to support that uh, people who see children in dental offices, whether they're pediatric dentists, orthodontists, or general dentists. They should be assessing airway risk and the shape of the jaw and the face. And uh, this is big. it's the biggest thing since fluoride that the American Dental Association has gotten behind in terms of introducing well, okay. new services. So, so yeah. people in the dentistry world, sure, they know about this, but uh, you know, regular folks, it's, it's a different story. So uh, a typical but, parent. But I, I, just, if you, if I disagree you, with your premise. People in the dentistry world don't know about this. They oh, did know. Oh, it's even worse. Okay. Or two, but they're starting to. And the American Dental Association is way ahead of the curve on this. But it does not reflect. This is so new to so many people in dentistry. Uh, there's, a, I think, there's over 200,000 members of the American Dental Association, and I would hazard a guess, and it's just a guess, that probably two thirds to three quarters of all dentists don't understand this importance of assessing risk in the dental office, because most of the traits that, that are indicative that a kid may be at risk or already have existing airway disease are above the clavicles. You know, it's definitely in the purview of dentistry, but there's not enough people that are really qualified. You know, pediatric dentists are, there's not enough of us to meet the demand just for tooth decay. And then when you start entering malocclusion and sleep and breathing hygiene, um, it's, we're grossly outnumbered. We have to get more general dentists involved in this. Is, is my contention. I think they're going to save the world. You know, I, I believe you, but but let's again for the layperson and for someone that's not in your particular sphere, uh, I can see them saying, "Well, why would I bring my child that's two to the to the orthodontist?" The, the, I, I would think they can only think of braces. So, what right. are the reasons why? parents would bring their child into the orthodontist at such a young age? What kind of things well, can they, happen? I'm, again, I'm not an orthodontist. I'm a pediatric dentist who almost does exclusively orthodontics on kids under the age of seven. So it, it's, you know, most most pediatric dentists are not comfortable doing this type of early and aggressive expansion on two, three, and four-year-olds. But they are very comfortable managing anxiety in kids relative to the need to fill teeth. All right, what's, you know, injections and drills and things like that. Um, and there's a certain amount of anxiety that's, you know, definitely intrinsic to, to providing orthodontic care at any age. Well, the most orthodontists don't get any training in managing anxiety in kids because it's not expected of them and taught to them in their training that you should really at least be evaluating three and four-year-olds, much less treating them. Um, but general dentists, you know, they they represent a whole new uh, cohort of, of providers. Now, you say, well, the layperson, they have expectations. They didn't get braces until they were 13. And I, you know, I get that from a lot of parents. Like, what do you mean you're going to do orthodontics? But when they see that, when you do expansion and, and the evidence that exists for it in the literature before World War II, um, parents get it easier than most healthcare professionals get it because they don't. They've, they've got their own expectations based upon their own experience with orthodontics, you know, when they were kids, and much less with the orthodontic profession is, is teaching the public is that, you know, get seen by seven, but don't get treated till between nine and 
13, you know, which is really the vast majority of treatment. So what you, it's easy to really override those expectations because they're parents and they have instinct. And when you start showing them pictures of kids, when you widen the jaw, you widen the airway, and then you, you know, show them uh, evidences of kids doing better in school after they get expansion, stop wetting their bed. You know, all, there's a lot of behaviors that, that are indicative that the kid is having trouble breathing while they're sleeping. And it, it's in the public domain now. In fact, there's a there's an online magazine called Medium. I don't know if you've heard of it, Medium. I mean, if you Google, they just did a, they, they, a reporter. Sometimes Catherine they read Lewis. their posts. Yeah, well, Catherine Lewis is a reporter for um, the Atlantic Monthly magazine. She spent a year and a half with me uh, in in, in uh, the work that we're doing at the Penn Museum, uh, just interviewing all kinds of people. And my partner, Mariana Evans at Penn, uh, where we you know took all the scans. And this story just was released like four days ago, and it's already gone viral. She called me, she emailed me this morning and said, the story is globally viral. So you can look it up. It's like why our our skulls are out evolving us or something. I I, I can read you the title, but it's an amazing uh, description hey, yeah, of, of what it is. I'm sorry. Yeah, for listeners and for myself, if uh, you know, we can provide a link to the article or the title of it, that would be great. Just as a note. Yeah. Well, yeah, I I got it right here. Um, so anyway, but that you know that is certainly one uh, aspect. There's in in. We've published several textbook chapters and medical textbooks about how this is an adjunctive or, or primary intervention uh, for kids who have sleep-related breathing disorders. We call it uh, SRBDs. Um, you know, a sleep apnea is the worst-case scenario. That's kind of end stage. Uh, so we want to recognize these signs. And then what we say is there's comorbidity of certain malocclusion traits with uh, sleep disorder breathing. So that's kind of um how it is getting in you know into the uh cyberspace i mean there's some parents come in here and they already know about it so it's it, when i first started doing this uh it was it was kind of tough and a lot of orthodontists were really oh you're too early and you're not an orthodontist and um really disparaging you know the work that i was doing even before i understood the implications of neurological development um, I was I was helping kids because malocclusion, it oh, if you recognize it in a three or a four year old, it will persist. That's uh, lots of literature in the orthodontic literature that says when you see kids with narrow and retrusive jaws in in the baby teeth, it will persist and it will worsen. It, it, and it even you know before they understood that it had airway and neurological implications. So it, it's like to tell a parent of a four year old that has you know these indications for treatment save up your money for braces is like an ophthalmologist telling a parent, you know, that your, your kid, your nearsighted four-year-old wait till they're driving a car because you don't want to burn them out on wearing too many glasses. And that's the argument that orthodontists put forward is that they say you'll burn them out. And it's like nonsense. It's medically indefensible to tell somebody to wait any more than you would for glasses or, you know, a kid with high blood sugar. Would you ever say wait till your kid's old enough to use an insulin pump uh, and maybe read Braille? They're afraid of they're afraid of what if uh, the parents don't wait? I'm sorry? What are they afraid of? Why are they telling parents to wait? Well, because they're not adequately prepared to deal with, like, how can I get an impression on a three-year-old that won't open his mouth? 
they're 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 fearful of you know the resistance that they may get from a public that expects orthodontic treatment you know in the 10 or 11 years old um and possible you know i'm a pediatric dentist a kid who won't open his mouth that doesn't bother me at all i just leave the room you don't have to open your mouth but invite me back if you decide to do it and i just leave the room and then probably 95% of the time the kid will be showing off that he can open like an alligator because my staff has says, you know, they, they just talk to him and I leave the room. The kid can't wait to show me how big they can. That's just a little pedo yeah. trick. Oh, I pediatric yeah. dentistry. But orthodontists don't learn that. And they can. It's not their fault, actually. I, I'm not I'm not really blaming the orthodontist. Their curriculum is at fault. They do not have any guidelines by which they have to demonstrate competence in managing anxiety in a child and managing expectations of the parent. That is pediatric dentistry 101. Every pediatric well, dentist let, let, knows how to do that. Let's get somewhat into the uh, the science of it. So just basically malocclusion is what? What does that look like and what does it do? Well, it, what it means is it's suboptimal alignment of the teeth and jaws with one another, okay? And basically, the earliest classification system is called the angle classification system. And Edward um, Harley Angle in the late 1800s came up with a system by which you could show that the lower jaw was growing too much and the upper jaw not enough. The upper jaw was growing too much and the lower jaw not enough. And then just right, the upper and lower jaw were growing just right. That's angle class one. Angle class two is when the, you know, chinless, that the lower jaw is way too far back. And underbite Jay Leno, he's a class three. Those are extremes. Well, what we've discovered in our analysis of the museum specimens is that everybody on the planet except royalty, and, and I don't know if there's time to go into why they're an outlier, but pretty much everyone that survives, you know, birth, because even in early childhood, wide jaws, forward jaws, and you know, not long face jaws. There's three dimensions to how a malocclusion manifests itself. And one is front to back, one is width, and then the other one is vertical or is, is the jaw growing long face like Abe Lincoln. You know, those mm. are the, that's a sign of bad breathing early in life. So does that all right, make so, sense? So when this happens, all right, so just to be clear, when you say bad breathing, that means that the person will breathe through their mouth instead of their nose and that will do what? How how often should you um, breathe through your mouth? Do you have any idea? It's only when you're exercising, supposedly, right? No, you should you should you know marathoners and uh, you know Kenyan uh, marathon runners. They run the entire race with their lips closed. No, you should, oh, wow. you should you should breathe through your mouth as often as you eat through your nose, and that is something <laughs> they make up. Karen, Karen O'Rourke is a family dentist in Grand Rapids, in Michigan, and she she came up with that. I I want to make a poster of it and put it in my office. But no, we are um, designed by natural selection to be habitual nose breathers, and and you know the only time that your tongue should not be in the roof of your mouth is when you're eating. Uh, mouth breathers also they have their tongue in their lower jaw, and it's it's growing the lower jaw. Uh, you need your tongue to be up in the roof of your mouth to grow your upper jaw, and then the lower jaw will follow it. So, that's oh, quick question: what, Why do you need your tongue in the uh, in, in your you know against your I guess your hard palate in order to grow your upper jaw? Is that because the tongue is pushing on the upper jaw slowly, exactly. slowly, slowly? Well, you know, pushing and widening, and um, <clears throat> the the what we say is um, whenever there's a conflict between 
muscle and uh, tongue is a group of muscles and bone, uh, which your jaws are. Um, whenever there's a conflict between muscle and bone, bone will always yield. So that means when a baby's born and starts to suckle and then starts to wean on hard foods and then those other things I talked about, click speaking and papoose, you know, riding the pet right. uh, in the mom's back, that tongue is up and forward and just pushing. The same way the brain grows. Do you have kids? Yeah, I have three, yeah. Okay, so you know when, when they're born, they have soft spots on their head, right? Those are called fontanelles. Right. They're sutures. And as the brain grows, those sutures allow the brain to expand. And the skull bone, the appositional bone growth, it's called, will form. And then eventually when the brain is done growing, it ossifies or, you know, it, it forms hard bone there. Well, you've got them all over the place. And you, like lick your tongue on the roof of your mouth. That's your mid-palatal suture. That's a fontanelle. You have one between your canines and your laterals called the incisive suture. Uh, there's, so mm-hmm. as a baby's growing and when they're nursing and weaning, their tongue, a group of muscles, is getting off the back of the throat and pushing forward, opening up the airway, expanding the face and the jaws. And that's really what needs to happen as early in life as possible. We have a saying, we, our goal is to create uh, uh, an, an anatomy of the craniofacial respiratory complex that's conducive to habitual nose breathing during wakefulness and sleep for a lifetime. And that really is conducive to, to longer life and, and better life, uh, quality of life and quantity of life. So, um, and again, we didn't, we, we thought maybe we were one of the earlier developers of this hypothesis. You know, like 10, 12 years ago, Dr. Steve Sheldon, who is head of sleep medicine at Lurie Children's, he and I worked on this protocol together. And then it's only been in the last two or three years where we've discovered all this literature that there's nothing new under the sun. They were doing this between 1880 and 1940. Go figure. For 60 years, physicians and dentists were doing this almost exact protocol that we do. And I'd be happy to... What is is the protocol? um, Well, it's what they called... And they weren't called ENTs, they were called rhinologists. And early on before, you know, the first specialty in dentistry actually was orthodontics, but orthodontics was being practiced as an art and science intervention by physicians and, you know, general dentists all the way up until the early 1900s. In fact, there were some medical schools that actually had a curriculum in orthodontics for medical students because of the benefits to the nasorespiratory function. So... um, I'm sorry. What was your what was your question? That the you pro- mentioned the protocol the that was done yeah, between 1880 and 1940. What was it? What is it? Yeah, exp- expansion of the upper and lower jaws, and what's called myofunctional therapy, um, which is mm-hmm. getting the tongue upward and forward. You know, myofunctional therapy is being. Um, I just was at a conference recently, the World uh, Sleep Society in in uh, Vancouver, where I was a speaker, and. There were people talking about myofunctional therapy as as being an emerging new uh, intervention. It's not new. It's being renewed. But this myofunctional therapy was understood in the late 19th century, all you know, all the way up through again pre World War II, and it's it's now being rediscovered. So, oh, this is a new era. And again, you know, the American Dental Association is getting completely behind this. Uh, when when the House of Delegates actually passes a resolution, that means a funding source is going to begin. Uh, and, you know, dentistry is going to lead the way in this uh, and start collaborating more with medicine and not just taking out tonsils and adenoids. Uh, 
it's you know this can work with doing tonsils and adenoids or it can you know some people suggest right. and not me that it you know can be done instead of uh i like to introduce it as an adjunctive that that you know there's a well, high but, rate of failure of tna surgery to cure sleep apnea uh like two-thirds to three-quarters of kids will have recurrent symptoms after a tonsil and adenoid surgery well if you're expanding and protracting you know the jaws it stands to reason that there's going to be more room uh you know for air when you take out adenoids and tonsils you're you're relieving one obstruction but there's still if the face is too retrusive or too far back there's still going to be crowding of that airway so that answer you so, all right you, you, you like way early on you mentioned uh, a seven-year-old as being a geriatric patient in the pediatric dentistry world um yeah, you know, a lot of people listening I mean, to this, I, I, yeah. myself included, will have kids, you know, 8, 10, 12. What can be done to help them if they have malocclusion, if they have sleeping issues, et cetera? You know, can myofunctional therapy work? What can yep. be done? Yep, yep. You have myofunctional therapy and expansion can work in adults. You know, I don't treat adults, but Mariana Evans does. Um, she treats kids and adults. And the, the type of expansion and, and protraction orthodontics that she does, it looks like they've had jaw surgery. It's just unbelievable. So, and yes, in the right hands, this can, and you know, I say I'd rather treat a kid at two, three, four years old, but if somebody brings a nine-year-old to me, oh, are we too late? No, nine is great. I'd rather have them at nine than 13. You know, it's all relative. You, for me, it's at the earliest age as is feasible. Well, as a pediatric dentist, I'm seeing kids at one. I'm not doing ortho on them, but I'm doing you know, uh, recommending baby led weaning and, and uh, myofunctional therapy. Um, but the earliest age as is feasible is when I see a kid. So if a 12-year-old moves here from Seattle, 12 years old is the earliest age feasible. But, you know, again, ideally, and even I can, you know, I'll send you a paper from JAMA, Journal of the American Medical Association, uh, 1922, 30 months of age. Well, that'd be great. Be great. 30, 30 months of age is the ideal, most optimal age to start treating a kid who has a narrow upper jaw and breathing problems. So, you what know, does and it look like, for instance, like just, just quickly, you know, what are the mechanics of an example treatment for, uh, you know, a child, let's say two and a half years old? What, literally, what would be done with them? Well, the person, a, how would you explain it? I had a two and a half year old today referred to me, and this child. Are you ready for this? Was born four months premature and weighed 20 ounces at birth. Um, so that kid's not ready because there's all kinds of behavioral problems. I mean, orally intubated in uh, intensive care for four months, so that you know the palate is completely underdeveloped. But what I want to do is just shape their behavior. So that's one extreme. Most two and a half year olds, three year olds. Once their oral defensiveness is, is, you know, something that you can deal with. And again, I'm a pediatric dentist. I, I know how to do this. Um, I can, I can get in there and do something, um, like there's, there's things called myobrace and myomunchies and infant trainers. Uh, you know, they're little rubber plastic devices that can, I use them to just, you know, get kids less orally defensive until I can get an expander in there or, uh, what's called an alpha plant, capital A, capital L, capital F, or, a, you know, uh, just a, a palate spreader is what they, you know, 100 years ago, that's what they called them. Uh, and these kids tolerate them great. It's the best kept secret in orthodontics. These kids are amazing. I'd, I'd take a I'd take a three-year-old over a 13-year-old boy any day of the week. 
because, you know, I used to be one of those. And 13-year-old boys are, you know, nice kids, but they're worst in compliance uh, with, with orthodontia. Little kids under the, you know, if you got a, I've got a really good team of assistants and they all love kids and I can leave the room and they can get a kid, they can get a, a 4.8 second cone beam scan, uh, you know, the, the x-ray on a three and a half year old, um, you know, six year old with Down syndrome. And, and they're not always perfect, but I can get really good diagnostic images and it's not me, it's my team. That's what's really important. If you're ever, where do you? I mean, you don't want to give away where you live, maybe, but if you, I'm in Texas. I'm in Austin, Texas. But, you know, Austin, that could be okay. anywhere. I, I've already I'm in a got secret location somebody. in Austin, Texas. I, I I can refer you to somebody great in Austin who knows what they're doing relative. Yeah, to please, the actually. Yeah. After we're yeah. sure. Yeah, yeah. So no, and we're establishing well, uh, people all over the world now. That that and I today I am. Uh, a dentist from Maine. I, every day I have people shadowing me that hear me lecture and want to come and learn our protocol. So, well, quick uh, question here. All right, so yeah. so a big thing that's done to children is braces. So tell me what your thoughts are on braces and your experience. Good, bad, horrible. What do you think? Well, ortho, you know, braces implies brackets, right? So there's a time and a place for brackets, but a lot of what we do doesn't really involve brackets. I mean, sometimes what I'll do is widen the kid's upper jaw and their front teeth go from being crowded and crooked to having too much space. Well, then I put four what I call temporary braces on an eight-year-old, say, and I pull those spaces together and close it, not to, for cosmetic reasons, even though it does look better. It moves, it redistributes the space to the upper canines to, to where they previously were blocked out. And now there's plenty of room. When you have blocked out canines, um, that means that there's not enough room for the tongue. And I, you know, if I look at a panorex of a three-year-old, and incidentally, it's safe, uh, not, you know, over-radiating kids, it's very low radiation. And the, the image quality that we get relative to the low radiation in a, a 4.8 second cone beam x-ray is fantastic. It really helps. Uh, and it shows the parents that the canine, the upper canines, there's no room. Uh, the teeth are already touching that they have to fit between. Well, a lot of orthodontists say, well, that canine doesn't come in until 12, so why don't you wait till they're 10 or 11, and then we'll start treatment and, and, you know, maybe have to pull some teeth, but, we, you know, you don't have to pay for braces twice then. It doesn't work that way. You, you know, when you expand a kid really early, and then you have to go back in and do Invisalign when they're 12. It doesn't mean you're doing anything over. You're doing some things additional. But you've got a kid that's, you know, to be able to breathe through their nose at the, at the maximum development of brain development where they actually need the best oxygen and the best sleep. So I, I use temporary braces on little kids. We don't really do full teenage braces much anymore. We do Invisalign because that technology has really gotten way sophisticated. We can even, you know, do it on kids who don't have all their permanent teeth in yet. Uh, so I'm I'm not promoting Invisalign. I'm just saying that we don't have to do a lot of the stuff that that you know full metal mouth anymore. Well, what does uh, what do full braces do? You know, the 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 look well, is they straighten the teeth and all that, but yeah. what's the, the good and the bad of them? Are they fine? Is there a better well, way? No, they, I mean, you know, if a kid, if you got an older kid or, well, younger kid that, you know, eats a lot of sugar and doesn't brush their teeth, you can you can get white spots and even, you know, bad tooth decay around the braces. 
So they have to be have extra cleanings and um, wires can come out, uh, poke them, you know, but we're, we're used to dealing with that. We, we help parents anticipate what the problems can be and how they can manage some of them of their own. Um, if there's emergencies, you know, we're on call 24-7. I'm also an attending in a pediatric dentistry residency in Chicago. So, um, you know, I have residents that, that can manage emergencies if they have to. Uh, I don't utilize that very much. I like to take care of my own emergencies. I make house calls. Uh, people can bring their kid over to my house. I keep a full emergency, a kid at home. Um, but Invisalign, you know, you don't have those issues, but you have compliance issues. They got to wear them, you know, the the aligners. And do you know what Invisalign is? Uh, you heard of it? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So it moves teeth orthodontically without wires and, and, and brackets on the teeth. So yeah, it looks to be like a hard, uh, clear retainer for the top and bottom teeth. Right? Yeah, that's what Invisalign is. But they're, they're, you know, you have a series of them. And each, you know, every two weeks you put a new aligner in and it moves teeth gradually the same way braces so oh, okay so it's a progressive series of retainer like yes well of retainers essentially that slowly move the teeth in a given way so listen the name of the article is called our skulls are out hyphen evolving us i didn't make that title up by the way um and that could mean oh wait that could mean a public health crisis is that the name of the article let me see um our skulls are out evolving us I think if you just Google that, and the name of the magazine, again, is um, Medium. Uh, and, oh, my God, this, they, she did such – she's a great writer, Catherine Lewis, and she did a great job on this. I've just gotten so many great comments from, you know, colleagues about it. And I, I emailed her this morning. I said, how is this resonating in the journalism uh, realm? And she said, you know – it's gone by it's internationally viral right now literally um so yeah, yeah it's a good summation of of our research and what we're talking about here is that the, the premise is basically all humans uh genomically are equipped you know depending on the environment from probably before birth uh in early childhood um to have all of their teeth and even their wisdom teeth uh I don't make that a treatment goal, but you know that's nobody had impacted wisdom teeth really till the industrial revolution. So uh, that's that's when 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 you're treating like I'm treating little kids, and I have the knowledge that this kid sitting in my chair, even though the roof of the mouth is high and and you know the teeth are crowded, even though they're baby teeth, they're they're still not enough room. I'm confident that I because I know that kid has the genomic potential to have room for his tongue. It, it, that's the, the whole conversation has changed. We're doing everything to create tongue space. That's really what we're doing. And when you do that, when there's room for the tongue, there's always room for the teeth. Uh, and, you know, it's it's true. I mean, I've, I've got thousands of uh, examples for, for that support why um, I'm saying it's true. I mean, and I, you know, I've been doing orthodontics for about 30 years now and uh i've got kids that are 10 15 years out of treatment even before i understood airway um you know what are what are some of the what are some of the major warning signs to parents that something's wrong with their child maybe sleep wise or otherwise and, and what gets fixed with this therapy 
Um, inattention, and again, this goes back to the 100-year-old literature that kids who have retrusive jaws um, can be accused of inattention by teachers. You know, this is over 100 years ago that was being talked about. Um, wetting the bed, grinding the teeth, snoring, sleeping with the mouth open, moving around in bed, sweating, uh, nightmares, night terrors. Those are all validated behavior traits that kids who have sleep and breathing disorders will have. It comes from, and I can send you this too if you'd like, it's called the Pediatric Sleep Questionnaire, which is a series of 24 validated questions to, um, you know, correlating certain behaviors to uh, poor sleep quality. Uh, and then there's something called an overnight sleep study, a polysomnogram, that they're expensive, um, but that's the only way you can define apnea. That means holding your breath while you sleep. Um, in a child, you, you can't really give a diagnosis of apnea unless they have an overnight sleep study. Well, if I do a pediatric sleep questionnaire and then combine it with um, a physical risk assessment of the craniofacial respiratory complex, and I actually am um, authoring uh, an assessment tool called Chicago Hearts. It's an acronym. You know, C stands for crowding. H stands for hypertrophy of the tonsils. You know, so incompetent lips is I. But, and, and it's really, we hand it out to physicians. It's a little flip chart, and they can look at a kid, and these are all traits, physical traits, that correlate with uh, either existing airway disease or predictive of future uh, susceptibility. And I'll, I'll send you a PowerPoint of Chicago Hearts if you want it. I hope you're writing this down and you send me a list of the things I promised you, and I'll <laughs> try to make good yeah, at it. Yeah, there's a lot. I've got a lot of homework to do now, but this is good stuff. Well, if you got kids, you're going to want to do it because, you know, I can tell by the way oh, you're, I agree. You're, you're, you might be concerned about somebody you know and love. So uh, I'd be glad to help you. I mean, call me after this and, or email me and I'll I'll try to put you in touch with somebody locally. Or if you're ever in Chicago. Okay. Well, that's great. Well, <clears throat> I want to give the resources to listeners too. So I'm going to ask you and then we're going to include as much as we can in the show notes. And then for listeners now, because we're ending, um, what what general things can they look for if they have children uh, that have issues and maybe perhaps themselves as adults, they have issues. Uh, how can they find a dentist that will be aware of these therapies instead of just the standard? You know, there is talks of establishing a network that people can go to. Um, there's lots of people for adults, uh, but not many for kids yet. There will be. Um, so I would say, you know, is if somebody like a parent or grandparent, aunt or uncle, you know, has sleep apnea, well, right away you can suspect there might be familial or genetic predisposition. So the, the questions you would ask um, yourself or, you know, somebody else's, um, does your child snore? That's the first one. And pediatricians are all supposed to be asking this, does your child snore? And if the answer is yes, how frequently and how loudly? Um, a survey has been done. And only 12% of pediatricians ask that first question. And of those 12%, zero of them ask the second question. So the Academy of Pediatric Medicine came out with this guideline, uh, I don't know, maybe eight, 10 years ago. Pediatric sleep apnea has only been defined since 1976. Christian Guimenot, he's uh, at Stanford, a French uh, pediatrician who, you know, he's the one who discovered it. Uh, he died recently, but uh, it's, you know, it's still, even though it's 
been discovered since 1976, there's still not enough people. Only kids can get apnea. Yeah, they can. Um, but the, the snoring question, do they sleep with their mouth open? Um, are they difficult to wake in the morning? Those are, you know, do they sweat in their sleep? Those are, you know, there's three or four basic questions that, that people can ask. And if, if those, any combination of those, especially snoring, um, you got to take it to another level. And um, most orthodontists really don't want to see a kid till they're seven or older. Um, sorry, that's just the way it is. Some do, not all of them, but the vast majority of them just think that um, it's superfluous to, to, to look at a kid before that age. And certainly you wouldn't do anything. Um, and most pediatric dentists, even though they understand growth and development, um, they're not really aggressive on treating things beyond maybe crossbites, which is an underbite in the back or front, um, you know, which is good. But um, there, there was a airway symposium. Uh, the ADA sponsored it two years ago. And the orthodontist showed up. The otolaryngologist showed up. The myofunctional therapist showed up. The pediatrician showed up. Uh, speech pathologist showed up. Uh, sleep medicine people showed up. It was a big roundtable. It was a huge deal. Uh, the Academy of Pediatric Dentistry declined. Thanks, but no thanks. There's there's not enough evidence. You know, was their contention. Uh, but I think there's there's the evidence has become much more clear. And I really think that subsequent uh, roundtable events and, and symposia that we're going to have on this. Um, the pediatric dentist will be there. Uh, and we're hoping this influences curriculum change. The pediatric dentists and orthodontists are, are going to be um, learning more about this in their training. <clears throat> Very good. Dr. Boyd, uh, it's been a great call. Um, we've got some resources coming for listeners, and I appreciate you being on the podcast. And, it, it, you know, give people my email um, if they want to okay. email Okay, what is it? And if they're dentists, uh, it's K as in Kevin, B as in boy, O as in orange, the number 569 at gmail.com. And really, if any clinician out there um, is in Chicago and wants to shadow and, you know, for a half a day or whatever, we welcome it. You know, we don't charge any money for it. We just, you know, we want to get this out there and get other people doing it. It's not that difficult, believe me. Uh, so, okay. great. Thanks for having me. Well, I very appreciate good. the opportunity. You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Thank you.